invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you please, to Nehemiah chapter 7. We'll pick up where we left off last time. We've been following this history recorded in Ezra and Nehemiah for many weeks, a few months now, considering the lessons that God has taught us through our spiritual ancestors during those days of restoration in Jerusalem, following captivity in Babylon, and then under the Persian Empire. We've watched as three waves of exiles have returned from their captivity to rebuild Jerusalem, her temple, and most recently her walls. This last feat, the walls we've noticed, has been quite a remarkable, astounding feat, really. In just 52 days, the walls around Jerusalem have been resurrected and repaired from the charred ruins and rubble to which they had been reduced decades earlier by Babylon. Now just one more question had yet to be answered. Who would live within those walls? Who would defend her from attack? Jerusalem needed to be repopulated, and that was no small matter. In fact, it would require great sacrifice on the part of those who would pull up stakes from where they lived comfortably and come to live in the capital city. And as a matter of fact, there is one of the lessons for us in the text before we've even read it. The need for us as Christians to lay aside our own particular interests in favor of the interests and welfare of the church of Jesus Christ, of the kingdom of God and his glory. It's but one of the great lessons of this text. But before repopulating Jerusalem, a prior task requires their attention. First, there must be government. There must be those who are given charge and authority over the people. There must be leaders in Zion. To Nehemiah 7, then after we pray. Father, we've come here to your sanctuary not to hear the voice of man, but to hear the voice of God. And we pray you will make it so. Send your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 7. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Now that verse, what we've just read, that first part of verse 3, that is, is very difficult to translate. Apparently, it describes some sort of extra precaution when it comes to the gates. Some think that it requires the gates to be closed during the midday siesta. And so they translate this passage as saying that the gates were not to be left open during the heat of the day while the gatekeepers are standing at ease. More likely, it refers to the morning and evening routine directing that the gates should be open last and closed early. 
Back to verse 3, And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ra'amiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, Bigvi, Nahum, Ba'ana. Now, Nehemiah's memoirs go on to record the number of those who returned under each of those different, uh, each of the different heads of families. The record's virtually the same one as we read back in Ezra chapter 2. So we're not going to take the time this morning to read the entire section again. But uh, to note, at any rate, that Nehemiah was here purposefully creating this, by this enrollment, a sense of continuity, of purpose, of continuation of the kingdom of God begun previously under Ezra's leadership. Just like a sense of our own spiritual ancestry can motivate us, particularly those of us who come from long lines of generations of Christians can motivate us and steal us for the work to which God has called us today. So it is with our spiritual fathers and mothers. There was a sense of orientation, a familiarity with the spiritual inheritance and calling would strengthen, would embolden them for the sacrifices yet to be made for the sake of the kingdom. We might also note that just as it was in Ezra, the list is divided between laymen and clergy, between the ministers and the servants of the temple. We'll pick up at verse 60. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. The following were those who came up from Tel Melah, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Emir, but they could not prove their father's houses nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 642. Also of the priests, the sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there. So they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female, 
Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Now some of the heads of the fathers' houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priests' garments, and 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of the fathers' houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 uh, minas of silver, and 67 priests' garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. One of the great advantages of the consecutive exposition of the scriptures, that is, making our way through entire books of the Bible from one paragraph to the next, from week to week, is that eventually you come to every subject, every doctrine, every teaching of the Bible, and that in the Bible's own proportion and frequency. And the Holy Spirit has placed in this chapter here in Nehemiah's memoir these things for a reason. So no doubt there is something for us here, something necessary, something very important for our souls and to the welfare not only of ourselves individually, but also of the church corporately and of the rising generation of the church, our children and our brethren. Here Nehemiah appoints leaders for the church, for that's what Jerusalem was, not merely a city, but in fact the church of the old epoch. There must be leaders in Zion. There must be those who take up the burden of direction, counsel, and authority among the people of God. And what is more, those who are given that authority to lead the church must be men fit for that task, equipped by God for it. And then, once in place, they must receive from the church the honor and the support that they are due as servants of the Lord, who have given their lives to the work of leading in Zion. Those are some of the subjects addressed here in Nehemiah 7. We must have leaders in the church. And that's the first point. We must have leaders in the church from time immemorial. It has been necessary for the body of Christ to have those to whom is given the responsibility to oversee and the authority to carry out and exercise that oversight of the flock. Now that might seem at first to you as very obvious, a very self-evident truth. No big surprises here. Of course you say there must be leaders in the church, but I tell you it is not obvious today and in our particular place in modern American evangelicalism as it has been in most of the church's history. Christianity in every part of the world and at every historical point has had to overcome one hurdle or another presented her by the culture in which she has lived. Some Christians have had to overcome their culturally embedded patterns of sexual immorality. And yet others, the 
cultural idolatries of one sort or another in their day and place. For modern American Christians, one of the cultural hurdles we face is the deeply entrenched spirit of egalitarianism and a radically democratic spirit that runs through the veins of our national identity. Equality has become the watchword of our culture. Equality, equality, equality. And while biblical Christianity has actually been the greatest proponent, the greatest force in all of history for true equality, the equality of the most important sort, the equality that we have before God regardless of our race or nationality or identity or sex. The fact is that our nation is turning its back on true equality and now is being engendered among us a different sort of concept of equality. A democratic, egalitarian, that is everybody exactly the same on the same level and so on. Radically individualistic culture wants radical equality at the expense of everything that is necessary for a culture even to exist. Forces currently at work in our day would, in the name of equality, do away even with right and proper distinctions between the sexes, for example. As though any distinction whatsoever implies inequality. Distinctions between the roles of men in marriage and of women in marriage, between parents in the family and children in the family, between employers and employees. All these distinctions are considered these days to be expressions of inequality and to be eradicated. And as in any age, breathing the poison of the culture long enough will begin to affect the thinking even of Christians. And as a matter of fact, if we studied it enough, I fear we might find that these cultural trends, in fact, follow the leadership of the church. That for another day. But if anything is clear in Scripture, it is that the Bible does not regard everyone in the same exact way in the Bible. There is an order, and some are above others in authority and leadership. Certain men have authority in the church to minister and to rule. Nehemiah, like Moses before him, like Paul and the other apostles after him, indeed like Jesus himself, understood. And so appointed men to rule. Nehemiah his brother Hanani, who had shown himself to have a heart for God's cause. Remember, it was he who made Nehemiah aware of the desperate plight of Jerusalem in the first place, and also Hananiah. These men are in these places of authority for the same reason that Nehemiah had been put there in the first place, because the health and the future and the welfare of Jerusalem 
for the sake of the worship of God. All of these things were dependent on having men who were given charge and leadership. Now, the people at the time probably gave very little thought to the fact that they needed leaders. They might have questioned who should be in charge, as when you remember Aaron and Miriam questioned the authority of Moses. They probably at least recognized that they must have leaders, and they depended on their leaders. Not so much today. We've not, by and large, been taught to see our lives as so intertwined with the life of the church and therefore of her leaders as the Bible does. We are wont to think of ourselves as Christians basically on our own. A bunch of John Wayne Christians, individuals, interacting with our authorities, yes, from time to time, but for the most part on our own and operating independently from the church and from her leaders. But the fact is, whether we care to acknowledge this fact or not, as our leaders go, so we go. The health of the church corporately as well as of ourselves individually is inextricably intertwined with, even dependent on our leaders. All over the place this principle is demonstrated, whether in the covenant lawsuits of the Old Testament, where the responsibility for the health of the church, for her spiritual or for her spiritual deterioration, on the other hand, is laid squarely at the feet of the leaders. of the ministers, of the elders of the church, or in the New Testament, where counterfeit leaders are the great threat to the churches that Paul planted. The Bible assigns these huge roles to leaders in the direction of the church and the lives of Christians, together, that is, corporately and individually. Those are some negative examples of the influences of leaders in the church. But the Bible teaches the same thing positively. In Malachi 2, verse 6, for example, we read of the priest, the faithful minister, that true instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. The Lord says, this is the positive effect that faithful leaders have, even to the point of being instruments of salvation. That's what I said. Instruments of the salvation of God's people. Paul to Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. This is a verse, no doubt, that Phil Bozarth will be hearing at some point in his ordination today. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Here are the leaders 
in the church virtually determining the eternal destiny of those who follow them and those who are under their influence. The fact is, every one of us as Christians, whether we, whether we like this or not, whether we even realize it or not, are deeply dependent on our leaders. You know this, I think, in your hearts. You know it from everyday experience. None of us thinks it a great idea to send our children into the world to find their own way. No. We recognize instinctively their need to be cared for, shepherded, led, taught, instructed, protected in their way. So it is with the children of God in the church and the fathers whom he appoints for them. We must have leaders, ministers, elders, deacons. Even when we are tempted sometimes to act like foolish children who wish to cast off our parents, perhaps especially then. So scripture not only gives us examples like this passage in Nehemiah, but direct commandments like Hebrews 13. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let no leader in the church hear that without a shudder running up and down his spine. Let them do this with joy. That is, let your leaders do their work with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. But that's not all that Nehemiah 7 has to say to us. We must have leaders, yes, but a certain kind of leader is what we must have. A leader, leaders who are qualified for the work. In talents, perhaps. In gifts, certainly. We look for those who are particularly gifted for whatever office they fill in the church. Ministers, must be able preachers. Elders must be able to rule. Deacons must be faithful in the leadership service in the church and the church's ministry. But um, first of all, and above all, and through all, we take our cue from Nehemiah in verse 2. I gave my brother Hananiah, and Hananiah, the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem, for... He was more faithful and God-fearing than many. There's the point. We must have leaders in the church. Yes, that's the first point. But not just any leaders. We must have, second, godly leaders. Give us leaders like Hananiah who are faithful, who show that they fear the Lord by the way that they live, by the way that they speak, by the way that they act, who lead not by words alone, but by their example. God, give us leaders like Hananiah and Hananiah, men who excel in godliness, who are clearly called to the work of the office that they fill. Or consider the scrupulous care that was taken concerning the priests in verses 64 and 65. 
excluded from the priesthood they were as unclean, any of them, that is, who sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies but could not find it. They weren't even allowed to partake of the most holy food until a priest with the Urim and Thummim should arise. Now, we don't choose our ministers, obviously, today by their pedigree, by their family line, nor our elders or our deacons, but we must judge them by their holiness, by their fitness for office as measured by their lives. The church's life and future depends on this, hangs on this. Richard Baxter, the Puritan authority on the effects of leadership on the church, was only stating a a universally accepted axiom. He wasn't making any controversy when he wrote this. All churches either rise or fall as the ministry doth rise or fall, not in riches or worldly grandeur, but in knowledge, in zeal, in ability for their work. And it was only to emphasize the immense practical importance of what was considered an obvious truth that a stone laid at the door of the old Kirk, Kiltern, Rothshire in Scotland should bear this inscription. This stone shall bear witness against the parishioners of Kiltern if they bring an ungodly minister. Here. It's been said that a basic law of the kingdom that is taught and illustrated countless times in Holy Scripture is this that the church will be as her ministers and elders are, that she will grow and prosper as her ministers and elders lead and teach and inspire her to do so that she will be no more healthy than her ministers and elders and never rise above them in spiritual life or strength. And that's why, that's why our pastors, our elders especially, need to feel the terrible weight that the Bible lays on them, that they will give answer to the Lord for the souls that have been entrusted to their care, that they'll be held to a higher account and a stricter judgment. Because so much rests on their work. Here's Baxter again. I'm afraid, nay, I have no doubt that the day is near when unfaithful ministers will wish they had never known the charge of souls, but that they had rather been colliers or sweeps or tinkers than pastors of Christ's flock. When besides all the rest of their sins, they shall have the blood of so many souls to answer for. Or Henry Skugel, who observed that if the negligence of a minister doth hazard the souls of others, it doth certainly ruin 
his own. Which made St. Chrysostom say, indeed, of the ministers of the church, I do not think that many are saved. And all of that could be said of the elders as well. Just yesterday, I was riding along in, in the car with a fellow Christian from here in town. We had a wonderful discussion that went all over the map, but we came to the matter of church government, the strengths and the weaknesses of Episcopalian and the congregational and Presbyterian forms of church government, of polity, and, and thinking at the same time about this morning's sermon, we agreed that while the form that church government takes may be of some importance, no form of church government is nearly as important as the caliber of the men who fill those offices, those leadership roles in the church. Who of us could argue seriously for one minute that, that any Christian is better off under a perfectly formed Presbyterian church government that is manned by ill-fitted ill officers then she would be under, say, a congregational type of church government filled with men who are filled with the Holy Spirit and godliness and wisdom. Right-thinking Christians will tell you without a doubt that they'd rather be under the leadership of a J.C. Ryle or George Whitfield, though they were Anglicans, Episcopalian bishops or priests, than, than to be under any Presbyterian who is unfit to lead. What man or woman who loves God wouldn't be thrilled to be a member of that congregation in Northampton, Massachusetts, if Jonathan Edwards were again its shepherd, though he was a congregationalist? Even the saintly Gregory I, he's been called, you know, the first pope, would be preferable over a great many men who have led Presbyterian churches by the hand through the centuries down the path of disobedience and unbelief and right into hell itself. You know this is true. For the sake of our souls, for the sake of our children's souls, we must have leaders, godly leaders who fear the Lord and who lead us, inspire us, even require us to do the same. God, give us such leaders in Zion. Amen.